Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1. You're all very, very welcome back. Well, uh, to my left hand now is journalist Lee's hand. Lee's, you're very, very welcome. Great to be here. The Sopranos um, turns 25 uh, years this month. Uh, it's incredible. It's so scary. When I heard that, I just immediately just could not believe. I just felt so old because it's one of those shows you just remember it so vividly that it's hard to believe so much time has passed. I know. And you were living, if not what, flitter gibbeting in New York <laughs> around it. A fabulous way to say arsing about. Well done. Absolutely <laughs> wonderful. But you were living in New York uh, at the time that it came out. So when it was sort of at its peak, what was it like living uh in the city when the city was, uh, well, New Jersey, actually. Uh, but when, when it came out on air, what was it like? Well, it was actually, it was a great time to be there because um, I lived in the rather unglamorous part of the Upper East Side uh, on Manhattan. And there was a small little neighbourhood bar I used to drink in. And it was a very blue collar bar, uh, firefighters, police, just loads of guys. We used to call it submarine bar, long, narrow, no windows and full of men. And it was, you know, Bruce on the jukebox. And what really developed over a period of months was every Sunday night when HBO put out a new episode. And of course, these are the days, Derville, where, you know, you got yeah. an episode a week. And you had to wait. You there was no binging. Yeah. Um, so about half an hour after the episode ended, everybody would head down to this bar called Marty O'Brien's. These were all hard, tough guys and sit around and have, what I, you know, a literary saloon, probably as opposed to salon. And we'd sort of talk about the episode and what had happened. And, you know, these guys were able to identify with some parts, not all, obviously, or hopefully of, you know, the, the character, <laughs> main characters. They weren't all life. mobsters. <laughs> they weren't all mobsters. But they knew these guys. They knew the guys like them. And they would talk about this like they were real people. And it gave them a chance to sort of talk about, you know, New Jersey and also stuff about maybe family things and issues and so on like that. So everybody really... I think, accepted the authenticity of this from the word go. And that's what made it very special. But the authenticity, the reality of what was a surreal character in so many, many respects. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is the thing about Tony Soprano, uh, as played by James Gandolfini, wonderfully played. He was he was. You know, he was such a complex character. I mean, he was, you know, the put upon husband. He had girlfriend problems. He had like, you know, a psychotic mother. Um, He, you know, had a troop of wise guys. They hung out in kind of, you know, shabby cafes and so on. And and he killed people. And he had, you know, he was in therapy at the same time. I think that was probably the big twist on it, you know, that you could probably accept all of these facets of his character. But there he is in therapy discussing it all. Well, this is it. And I think, you know, New Yorkers particularly love therapy. I mean, you'd have people, you know, I'd even eavesdrop. I remember hearing two guys one day in Central Park talking about both their dogs are in therapy. And, you know, like that's the level that New York people just love therapy. You're the odd one out if you don't have one. You absolutely are. Uh, I think as, you know, what Tony Soprano used to refer to as the Laughing Academy. I think he actually was the description he used to describe being in therapy. Yeah, it's brilliant. Like, I mean, it was that. It was was all of that. And he's bringing it into therapy and you could see him sort of agonising it. And which was very, very unusual, I think, at the time. I don't know if if we have a clip of Tony in therapy. Nowadays, everybody's got to go to shrinks and counsellors and go on Sally, Jesse, Raphael and talk about their problems. Whatever happened to Gary Cooper, the strong, silent type? That was an American. He wasn't in touch with his feelings. He just did what he had to do. See, see what they didn't know is once they got Gary Cooper in touch with his feelings, that they wouldn't be able to shut him up. And then it's dysfunction this and dysfunction that and dysfunction my fungal. You have strong feelings about this. Let me tell you something. I had a semester and a half of college, so 
I understand Freud. I understand therapy as a concept. But in my world, it does not go down. Can I be happier? Yeah. Yeah. Who couldn't? It's just brilliant just hearing it all again. But bring us back to Marty O'Brien's bar, uh, which is in a very, very eclectic uh, part of uh, New York, to be fair. But uh, and just that contradiction between how all of those men in that bar got Tony Soprano's character and the authenticity of it, even though the world that this fictional character was involved in was so far removed from the day to day of, you know, your average firefighter or your your NYPD cop or whatever it was. Yeah, this was it. I think it's because the normal conversations in Marty's would revolve around, you know, money making schemes and sport. um, And really, that was about it. Not really even politics. So I think that the other, and there was also, you know, obviously huge wisecracking and banter. And I think mm. that's also something that a lot of them identified with it was the very rich vein of dark humour that that went all the way through all the series of The Sopranos is one of the saving things that it wasn't unrelentingly dark. And I think it gave a lot of these sort of ordinary guys sort of fresh way of looking at each other. Um, and then all the cops, of course, would have probably a lot of them would have come across wise guys or guys like them in waste management, quote unquote. Um, So, you know, they were it it just opened up a kind of a way just to sort of have different conversations, I think, as well. Yeah, because he is a very kind of man's man. And yet, but when you see someone like that, you know, uh, knocking therapy, but at the same time, you know, uh, dutifully turning up each week. (laughs) Well, this is it, you know, and I think there's a wonderful I I think in the very first time they they actually he sits in in in, um, Dr. Melfi's office you know and he go. he says yeah I'm in waste management and she just turns around and says I live next you're, you know I'm friends with your next door neighbour so you know she knew immediately yeah. so it was, that was her way of saying don't come I, in here with this yeah. you're, I, I know exactly where you're coming from I've got you and, and it wasn't just the permission for those guys in, in, in Marty's uh, bar to kind of find a new way to talk to each other it actually was the start of a new era in television it completely. was absolutely changed everything. I mean, the, the two biggest shows on television at that stage were um, Sex and City, which started the year before in 1998, and The West Wing, um, which was just up and running. And they are, you know, both, obviously one was completely all glamorous. It was the glamorous Manhattan. It was, you know, all about women and empowering women and clothes and shoes and relationships. And then you had The West Wing, which is this incredibly brilliant, idealised, you know, version of, uh, of what the White House could be. Um, and then you had this, which was completely dark, incredibly complex. You were drawn into the world from the word go Um and it also, the way that it was written, I mean, a, an awful lot of the writers went on to work and create shows like Mad Men and The Shield. And a Breaking Bad writer said, you know, without Tony Soprano, there would never have been a Walter White. He worked on the show. it gave them the permission. It gave them permission. And David Chase has been, um, several times in interviews, has talked about how he was given creative freedom by HBO to take massive chances. I mean, creating a character like Tony Soprano was a huge chance because you have this character who essentially goes out and loses his temper and kills people. And like one, I, I don't know, I probably forget all the characters' names, but... Um, the guy that he kills because he disrespected his horse. Oh, yeah, Ralph. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, that, he literally lost his rag because the guy was dissing the horse and the horse had lost money. And yeah, and he lost and he, he killed him in a fit of temper. And but the, the genius of the writing, I mean, there's another I think it's an episode f- uh, series four. There's 
Tony's driving in his car and he's listening to music like we all do rocking out to music. Then a song comes on and it is the most genius. It's about two minutes and you see his face change and he starts crying and then he sort of sm- half smiles. And within two minutes, you know, I'm, I don't like going into plots too much for spoilers, mm. but he goes to a guy's house, commits some violence. And yet within by the time he leaves, you're kind of going, oh God, the poor guy has a, such a soul and such a heart. And, the, <laughs> you know, without giving this away, you've gone from, you know, really liking him to kind of going, oh, my God, he's just like done something to somebody. And then by the end of two minutes, and that is in the writing and in the incredible range of expressions that would go over. Um, Even to, to the point you were just going, well, house. you know. You shouldn't have killed him, but, you know, you shouldn't have talked down the heart. You yeah, know, I mean, it's, of... it's extraordinary. You know, it was absolutely amazing. Uh, again, so it was two very, very different depictions of New York life um, with sex in the city. And then obviously um, this was show- well, a lot of it, obviously, New Jersey, but it's showing a very, very different uh, side to the city. Well, this was it as well, because, you know, you had Sex and City, which was all about the bars of Manhattan and all that. Um, and then you had this, which was... About New Jersey, which, you know, I mean, obviously some they have famous on someone like Bruce Springsteen, obviously put New Jersey on the map as well. But this was sort of showing uh, a completely different side of it was, I suppose, in a way it was set in suburbs, which again was even then was quite unusual to have dramas not set necessarily on the gritty, kind of slightly glamorous mean streets, but in suburbia and the way that people could live. But that was a great antidote to the, you know, the, the beautiful suburbs versus what his day job was. Well, this is very true as well. I mean, you know, it, and I think the, the great thing about the writing of this was you never knew what was happening. And, you know, he wrote ambiguity and unexpected things into every episode. I think it was probably the unpredictability of, of it, you know, and then that excitement factor of turning up every week to it. You yourself actually got to meet James uh, Gandolfini. How, how did that come about? I think meet is definitely... Um, am, I, am I stretching <coughs> the word? You are definitely stretching the word. It was probably one of my more shameful episodes in a way um, because I was... James uh, David Chase was um, being interviewed in a QA and a um, in, I think, the Museum of Modern Art. And I went along and it was fascinating. It was one of those Q&A talks about writing, the creating of the, of, of the show and so on. And... It was a sellout and I was sitting beside, there was an old guy sitting beside me, oldish guy, and he he had paid no attention to what was going on. He was, I, so I kept looking, trying to figure out what he was doing and he, I realised he was, he was correcting essays. So he was clearly a teacher and they were quite clearly maybe sort of third grade essays or whatever. And he paid no attention. So anyway, came to the end, Q&A thrown to the audience. And just as they were wrapping up, this guy stands up and he starts barracking David Chase for bringing New Jersey into disrepute because there were a cohort of people, respectable yeah. burgers living in the really lovely parts of New Jersey that thought that this, you know, shone a bad light on, on, on the place. And um, lots of waste management companies. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> lots of waste management companies. So uh, which is, you know, the question itself was valid, even though it had been answered many times. Chase stood up to try and reply and this guy just kept barricading him and shouting him down to the point where they just shut down the, the Q&A and I just saw red and I just sort of turned to him and I just, you know, I kind of thought to myself, is this sort of, is this how he behaves in the classroom? I mean, he pays no attention to what's been going on around him, decides to impose his view and won't take anything. It's your way or the highway. He was there just to present He's the one thing. Just to he? protect yeah. the one thing. So I turned around and I let fly in my inimitable Irish way with plenty of, of profanity. So he just sort of picked up his coat and stormed off. 
So I turned around to get my coat and I could hear laughter behind me and I look and there is Jane Scandalfini <laughs> and Lorraine Bracco and they're you both in stitches. And I just took fright. I, I, all I could see was Tony Soprano and like about six <laughs> inches away from me, yucking away and kind of giving me the kind of black eyes. And I just picked up my foot my, and I just legged it to my absolute and utter shame. But even at that moment, I couldn't separate Gandolfini from Soprano. I oh. just saw the wise guy. Uh, one of our listeners, Anna, come on, uh, Lee's Ralph was killed for far more than the <laughs> yeah, horse. Well, that's true. He, yeah. says, <laughs> he represented a lot of things. and was one of the most despicable characters in the whole show. And that is saying something. So, what are your what are your, some of your top top moments from the show? Well, I think I've had to pick one episode I loved it, and it's so many people's favourite was Pine Barrens, which was the episode that was actually directed by um, Steve Buscemi before he actually joined the show. And essentially, it ends up with um, Christopher and Polly lost in the woods in New Jersey, and it is one of those episodes that. Everything unexpected happens. Stuff happens and you're going, oh, my God, I never saw that coming. And it's absolutely hilarious and it's brilliantly written. I think we may have even lined up oh, a little excellent. clip especially for you. The guy you're looking for is an ex-commando. He killed 16 Chechen rebels single-handed. He was with the Interior Ministry. Guy's some kind of Russian Green Beret. This guy cannot come back to tell this story. You understand? You're not going to believe this. He killed 16 Czechoslovakians. Guy was an interior decorator. <laughs> oh, it's just absolutely brilliant. Tell me, the one thing that did um, challenge a lot of people was the ending. Please hand. Yes. Now, I am aware that there's probably, you know, there is a resurgence of interest in Soprano. So there's a new generation that haven't seen it and maybe are working their way through As the... As Sex and City, a lot of the, those... Precisely. Yeah. And, you know, I... so. We won't actually sort of go into the ending as such because I hate spoiling. Just to say spoilers, that it divided the original watchers. It massively did. Now, on a personal level, I, lo- I actually loved it because it's one of those endings that left the massive ambiguity. And I loved that because I, the whole show was about ambiguity and not really it understanding was a big what was going it. on. Yeah. It was a huge theme. And it, it, it had that... You know, people do kind of use the, throw the word Shakespearean around a lot, but really it was it, it was Shakespearean sometimes in the level of acting and the dialogue and the lack of dialogue. Sometimes it was just the pauses. Mm-hmm. And this had a sense of a kind of suddenly just a curtain dropping. And I loved and people really not knowing what just happened behind when the curtain dropped. And I thought it was magnificent. And I think it was, he did, you know, it wasn't one of those cynical ends kind of saying, oh, this leaves the door open for people to come back. I think it mm-hmm. was an absolute that is it finale and leave people to kind of make up their own end. And to me, that's the sign of a brilliant, wonderful drama. And I mean, it deserves every single plaudit, every gong at one, every five star review it got, every chat it, it, it engendered around water coolers at work the next day or over a beer. It deserved them all. It's absolutely just the best series ever. Well, your enthusiasm is just flowing still. 25 <laughs> years later and still looking as young. Lee's hand, journalist oh, and uh, friend of the New Jersey Mafia, kind of, sort of. <laughs> uh, thank you for dropping in. We're going to take a very quick break. Email brendan at rte.ie.